questions. I always say we live in a, an abundance of information, but a poverty of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that's how I think I feel a lot of the times. And social media has only escalated that as well, too. I'll have I'll what have she's having. Welcome to another edition of Digital Confidence Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the show, wherever you are, however you are. Hello, it's Tony. I am your host. This is the She Talks Confidence Podcast. This week, another amazing guest that we have is Shahana Alibi. Shahana, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, thank you for being on. I know we had a little bit of a back and forth here with some scheduling, but uh, and now the, all the kids are where they should be, right? My daughter's 31 now, and I had that issue before, and then I get the grandkids come over here, and it's like herding cats, and I'm like, oh, I remember why I was exhausted 99.9% of the time. Absolutely. Exhausted and don't feel very accomplished sometimes. I know. And that kind of rolls into what we're going to talk about. Of course, the show is about confidence. I have powerful women come on. They tell their personal stories about when they had it, when they didn't, how to get it, and their tricks and tips along the way. And Shahana, as being a very successful doctor yourself, you've gone through the trials and tribulations of that. And I really would like you to share your story about your postpartum and the OCD and your personal struggles and how you came out of that. Yeah, absolutely. So you alluded to that well, too. When I was on the TEDx stage in 2019, I gave the talk with the impetus of talking about emotional literacy for better mental health. So on that stage, I called myself a hypocrite. And as a physician who has been now practicing for 10 years, I practice family medicine with a real focus on adolescent medicine. Mm. And when you deal with adolescents, you end up dealing a lot with sexual health and mental health. And often those two things can be related as well. Mm. So here I was on that TEDx stage and I used the word hypocrite, which was completely correct. And I also used the words postpartum anxiety, because the funny thing is when we use these words, anxiety, depression, now post-COVID, people tend to take a step towards you. Sure. Truth in my sure. story, right? We exactly. The book, yeah. I think that's one good thing that COVID has done is the lexicon has changed so we can actually use the words without fear. Mm-hmm. Not so much when it comes to bipolar, schizophrenia, suicidality, OCD. Suddenly it's too much. It's right. too crazy. You take a big step back. Mm-hmm. So for me to utter the words postpartum OCD, which was the accurate and truthful diagnosis, didn't come out until probably last year because and really even saying that on a podcast for the first time, I felt so incredibly exposed. But it was the fact that I had so much further to fall because this idea that I had spent 10 to 12 years in postgraduate education, studying medicine, studying kinesiology and nutrition, I really felt like my education and privilege was the biggest bolster, as if I was walking around in one of those big Teletubby suits. Like nobody could get me, right? I right. thought oh, I thought Yeah, exactly. More empathetic I could not be. I guess. Not only that, and then you're counseling patients. You put on your outfit, suddenly I am more confident because I am doctor and I protest to patient. Yeah. And we still live in that kind of paternalistic system. And I was always about advocating and communicating and being there and supporting you. But I forgot the one thing that the patients actually had a ton more courage than I could ever have. Because the minute I had to sit as the patient, I looked at the provider and said, it's not my mental health. It must be my thyroid. It's got to be my iron. Like mm-hmm. you find the organic cause because I'm not like this is not me. Right. And yeah, no, th- th- it was. And there w- it was a big reconciliation to go, 
oh my, and what does this say about you? And that, if you want to summarize mental health and our stigma towards it, ask yourself that question. What does blank, having OCD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, say about you? And the honest answer, here we're talking about confidence. The antithesis of confidence, I would say, is almost weakness. Mm -hmm. And for me, mental health was weakness. Mm -hmm. So that kind of bringing everything full circle, I am now the patient. I am now in the role of the what I felt very vulnerable and having to do the things that nobody wants to do. Seeing a counselor and telling your story, people make it seem easy. It's not. Starting medication that you don't know what it's going to do to your body is not easy. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I'd be the one to walk that road, but I have and I currently do. And I counsel and help patients. Did it take you a long time to get to the point where you could really accept it, accept the fact, yeah, I do. I really do need help. Or was that one of those things where it was like build up and then all of a sudden you just couldn't take it anymore and your subconscious just blew out your consciousness and just said, I got to get some help. I got to have something. Something has to happen. I think it's a combination of both of those things. It was a year. Mm -hmm. I started going back to work at four months, not because I wanted to, but because I was running away and work was stable. Work was predictable. And I happened to work in the mental health field. So I had no problems helping other patients. But you go home and suddenly you feel like the smallest version of yourself. And it really wasn't until the clearest thought in my head was that it was better off for my family not to have me here. And that was a crystal clear thought. And that's a thought that I counsel many patients on. I can recognize a mile away that I thought, okay, this has now come much too close to home. And it's hard. Even when you have that feeling, you still, we do, what do we do with our emotions? We suppress them, we deny them, or I blame you. It's your fault I'm having that emotion. So I did what a lot of women do and men. I suppressed it. I pushed it way down deep until Mm -hmm. it will start to come out in other ways. The energy starts to come out because it has to come out somewhere. Exactly. It it could be in health issues. It could be in mental issues in terms of just losing it in certain aspects. When you did go through and you finally decided, okay, and you finally accepted the fact that you needed help, you Mm -hmm. finally let that go. How was that process for you? And do you think that your experience in where you come from helped you or hurt you initially in starting to go through that process of healing and understanding? I've actually never been asked that question before. And it is such an important question. Of course, when you're in the field, you can navigate the field once you want to a little bit better. But I think the biggest way that it hurt me was because here I was writing prescriptions left and center. But my inner belief was that using prescriptions potentially was a sign that the patient just didn't have it all together. And that is the biggest stereotype. But because I, and I admit it, and it's hard to admit that, had that internal belief that made me stop or even take so long to consider medication. And that was the biggest detriment because honestly, I always talk about this mental health is the picture. So we talked about the picture being for me, it was passive suicidality. There was insomnia. There was panic attacks. Mm-hmm. But individual, the pixels of all of that was my emotional health. Mm-hmm. And every opportunity I had that the emotion was trying to squeeze its way out that I just pushed itself down. So I just suppressed it. So it depends on how severe the picture is in terms of how much you need the help that you're getting. And the severity of my picture was there, but the resistance to do anything about it was equally as great. 
the medication thing is a fascinating thing. When I was going through my grad school and started off and doing my therapy stuff, well, what, 12, 15 years ago or something. And that's back when everybody's coming out of the Valium curve and going into the SRI stuff and the Prozac and all that. Everybody was getting on it like a lifetime thing. It was always stressed to us uh, in grad school and then afterwards in my work was that the meds were only supposed to be there to establish a baseline and to get the patient to baseline in order to then work on yourself when you were at baseline. But it's interesting, your perspective was a complete denial of the fact that you even needed meds in the first place to get to baseline. Absolutely. Coming as a daughter of a pharmacist too, it was <laughs> all the more that, you know what, that is, and I think right. it, mental health and sometimes it really has that, it's a you versus me disease. That's yeah. a you problem. It's yeah. not a me problem. Like I'm never, and when I give talks in the audience, I can see it in people's eyes that, yeah, that's for you guys over there. And right. it's just my, and my inlet, my way of talking about mental health, because for, for a lot of people, it still can be a hard subject to broach, is that one out of five of us will have a diagnosable mental health condition. Sure, fine. Five out of five of you, all of us will have an emotion. So let's start there. I think that's another misnomer too, because a lot of people think that, hey, if you're not, what is it, DSM-5 now? Or it was <laughs> DSM-4 back in the day, which is our diagnostic manual for diagnosing things from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. And they think, oh, I, if I'm not like diagnosed that, then I don't have an issue. It's like a black and white thing versus it's a gradient scale and we all have certain issues. And I think the most important thing coming out of so far of what we are chatted about is the yeah. fact that being okay, acknowledging it and acknowledging mm -hmm. that you're in a bad way or, or acknowledging and reaching out that you need some level of help regardless of who you are, because I share the same thing with you in terms of you get to the point where you go through and you've got three advanced degrees and you go through this stuff and you think, I have issues, but I should know how to deal with them. Right? And then you try to sail the ship on your own. It ain't going to work, right? <laughs> Sometimes exactly. you need some other people come in. So when you did finally decide and you were going through that process and you said, I finally, I'm okay with getting on the meds. What was the journey like after that? And it was it what you expected or was it, were there some interesting twists and turns along the way for you? Oh, I, yeah, no, I think it was so interesting. You really do find out that I had been hiding this huge part of me. Because if you really want to go into the truth of the matter was that I actually started having symptoms of what's called pure obsessional OCD since the age of four or five. Mm. That was 35 years ago or 30 okay. years ago. Yeah. We nobody knew what pure OCD was. It was such a subtype. And as a child or as an adult, anybody with OCD that doesn't have the compulsions goes unrecognized. Now I know that if you start off with that predisposition, of course, in the postpartum period, it's going to hit you hard. That's textbook. But for me, I had suppressed, have suppressed, use medical school as a brilliant way to dis of a distraction because there was nothing better than keeping my brain distracted from all oh, of Clearly, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why, to be honest, as a student and as a child, summers were really hard for me. The academic periods were great. The minute that there was nothing to do or nothing to occupy this. Yeah, the space. Absolute turmoil. Exactly. Yeah. And that space is something that I think we talk so much about meditation and whatnot. Let's forget that for a second. Let's just talk about space. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about quiet. There's that wonderful study that shows that people would rather give self-administer electric shocks and be alone with their thoughts. Like we need to take. Such a powerful study. And that is so true. And how crazy is that? Right. Literally, you'd be you're more okay with shocking yourself than sitting in your own gravy in your own space and just chilling out. 
I don't know if you see this as well. I see this, especially with the younger women that I work with, because of the way society is and because of the social media stuff that's around, it's even worse. It's way worse than it was from back back in the old horse and buggy days that I grew up in. Do you see that as well? Oh my goodness, absolutely. So I have a practice that, yes, it's focused a lot on adolescents, but I also see in a regular family practice, women of all ages too, and men, of course, that this is an I'm I fall into that category where between your 25s and 45s, you're supposed to figure out who you want to marry, try to advance your career, spit out two and a half kids, do all of these things. And it's no wonder then you start to look at your comparison who looks like you should act like you, but seems to have no problem on Instagram or Facebook posting all these things. Right. And that one of the foundations of self-compassion is this idea of connection, not comparison. Right. Mm-hmm. We live in a world of comparison, even though we're surrounded by many people, we don't have meaningful connections. I always say we live in a, an abundance of information, but a poverty of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that's how I think I feel a lot of the times And social media has only escalated that as well, too. Completely. And I and you did mention you just briefly touched on this. And I think it's a really important thing. And I know this is one of your one of your keynote aspects in your talks. It's the aspect of self-acknowledgement of the compassion versus self-love and leniency versus leading. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's really important. So the way that I got to thinking about this, because all of this stuff that I think about, I'm not, unfortunately, in medical school, we have zero training in what we really should, which is, I think, at least a semblance of CBT. You can choose to do some training afterwards. I understand maybe there's so much to cover, but I think day one in medical school, focus on some of this stuff. But in any case, a lot of this stuff is what I observe in my patients and anecdotes, especially in my young patients. And this is one of the things I kept observing. So when I would ask them, and it just, you know, you're trying to make conversation with a 16-year-old who doesn't think you're very cool. And by me asking these questions, I certainly only implanted that idea that I also wasn't very cool to them. Like, okay, what the heck? Let's keep going with this. Yeah. There's nothing we can do. We're not going to be cool. That's just it is what it is. What it is. If you're over, if you're over thirty, forget about it. So. Oh, well, I had one time saying I said I graduated in this year. I was born in that year, so that really, really helped me a and lot. Then the, the, the liver spots are exploding on your hand at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. 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 So I would ask them. I said, "Do you love yourself?" And this is to a sixteen-year-old. So mm-hmm. from, I thought the answer would come pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And over and over again, I would get this. Not just I don't like myself. I bleep hate myself and multiple bleeps. And I think to myself, there's that much self-loathing. And the funny part is the way that they act with the grandeur and even that grandiosity is completely in contrast to when you get them into a quiet room about how they feel about themselves. So sometimes I ask them this, then why do this? Like, why come here? Why see me? Why do the work? Why? And one girl once told me, she's like, the pain. The pain is too much. And that's when I really started to think, okay, where do we reconcile with these ideas of self-love just feels like burnout. Like they're both valid terms. We just tend to overuse them as well as self-care for that matter. It's just a lot of that. (laughs) I totally agree completely. It lost its meaning. And what I try to teach my youth, and there's a beautiful example of this. And it was in a patient that I saw a couple of years ago now. And she had left an abusive relationship. She must have been only maybe 18 or 19. And it was to a man who was older than her. And she was a twin. And her twin had graduated university, got a degree, 
And she had left this horrible, abusive relationship and was going job to job and had really very limited stability in her life. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and she's like, when my parents look at my sister, it's like all they see is pride and joy. When they look at me, it's failure. And I told her, I said, do you understand that the courage and strength it took for you to leave an abusive verbally, physically, mentally relationship with somebody older than you in another province, for that matter, mm-hmm. is probably a thousand times more, I think, learning that you would have gotten from that than any four-year university degree. And for, I just saw that relief wash over her, that someone had to take, reframe it, allow herself to look back. And just because it didn't have a degree attached to it, whatever she went through was worthy and acknowledge her of that. And I think especially for these kids who come from such deprived backgrounds, not only that, but even for us, I told my husband that I think the reason why we crave significance is due to a lack of consistent acknowledgement. A hundred percent. And I really feel that way. And Part of it is wanting it from the people that you care and trust about. And if you can't get that, then you flash it. You look for significance constantly. And social media just happens to be the easiest one. And the worst one, right? Oh. Just, just about, But you touched on two amazing points. The first point was the whole reframing aspect yeah. and the tool of being able to take something and reframe it. And the people that come to me, the women that come to me, your patients, they don't have that ability to do that. And one of our jobs, one of our most important jobs is to teach that. Yeah. Is yeah. to be able to teach the fact that you do, you have levels of introspection. You understand when that movie in your head, the toxic movie in, you, in your head is going on and you can stop that and pattern interrupt that and then reframe that message into really what it is. Now, most of the time they have to come to us and we have to sit there and go because we are trained to see that yeah. we can mirror that and parrot that back to them and then teach them that. But that's the reason why I do this show. And that's the, and that's one of the main messages that I love to, for anybody to absorb in listening is the fact that you can do this on your own. We do this all the time. It doesn't mean that we don't have issues just like we talked about. And and in fact, it, it does sometimes because we're in our own stuff and because I've done 20 years of advanced school and research and all that stuff, I think I can do it right without having to reach out or do anything else. I wanted to circle back to your to the OCD and the postpartum. Two distinct things, two like intense situations to be mm-hmm. in. Did you finally get to the point where you could use that reframing? And did you have to do it different for both of those things? Or could you clump them into one and then work your way around that? I think I'm just doing that reframing now. I think reframing and acknowledgement. Sometimes it's when you run a lap around the track or I should maybe you run long distance, you look behind you and you see you need a little bit of space sometimes between where you were and where you currently are. It doesn't mean you need to make progress or achieve anything. It just needs a little bit of space between those two things. And I'll be honest, because I had lived for 34 years with OCD, the shame had built up in intensity squared. So it took me a long time to, first of all, utter those words. And second of all, actually talk about it freely. It's much easier to talk to a stranger than it is to talk to your own family members because of the fear of judgment. So when I was able to have conversations and use those words freely to my mom, sister, dad, then I knew that I had gotten to a stage where my thickness, it's like the thickness of your pillow is great enough. 
But if you're trying to do that and you're sleeping on a wafer thin pillow, that ain't going to work so well too. So I think that all comes back. That thickness I call self-compassion. Part of that is acknowledging where you are. But the other two key pieces, I believe, is agency, being able to live lives on your terms. And I think a lot of that is, is societal. There is a gender difference there as well, too. But agency to say the freedom to do what I want when I want to do it, which is, of course, we all have to work and do all of that. But if you're in a relationship that suffocates you and constrains you, it's really hard to have self-compassion. Right? Oh my God, completely, because you're not getting the reinforcement from there. It, it would be great to be an island and to be totally self-sufficient in the fact that you can always just say, I'm good, and you can have that, the inner dialogue to where you're okay. Sometimes you just have weak moments, and that's why it's so important to have your tribe. Now, we talked about a lot of stuff. I want to get to the end of the postpartum and the OCD. How did you finally work through that? What was the final piece of that, and then what did you take away from that? Yeah, journey? no, I love that. That, that journey. Let me tell you the pivotal step. And it was when I was working in an office and I had a colleague there who's now become a close friend. And I decided for the first time to actually share it with her. I don't know. I think we were both charting late and we were tired. And I'm like, yeah, I've been going through this bit of a difficult time. And I told her the words. I used the correct words. I didn't just say anxiety. I gave her the. And she looked at me and she said, me too. Not that she had gone through the same thing, but it was the fact that my hope and prayer is that whoever and whenever you decide to share your story, you are met by the same grace. When I had the courage to do that, especially to a fellow colleague, if she had looked at me and said, oh, what's wrong with you? I think that would have taken me another six months to get out of. Mm -hmm. So that was a precipice to say, then I started sharing it. And I actually just spoke at Yale University on postpartum OCD. And that was just a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. So now I'm seeing it. This is the last A of what I believe builds a cushion to self-compassion, the acknowledging piece, agency, mm -hmm. and living in alignment with your values. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, being a doctor is partly in alignment with my value systems, Speaking is 100% in alignment with my value systems. Your values, are they coming up organically? Did you know them ahead of time? Are they growing? A lot of my clients come to me and say, I really don't even know my values. How, oh my do, you, how do you get them? How do you determine what they are? I, I think you need to allow yourself to own your story for better or for worse. Within your story lies your value system. You just have to look, right? It's like putting this control F <laughs> when yeah. you're trying through a document. They're in there. Right. Yeah. You just have to look. And I never thought my value system was working with marginalized populations ever. I would much rather serve a marginalized youth than be a family practice at a very privileged clinic. Nothing against them. That's just in alignment with that. This whole idea that your fears and you know your value system, absolutely not. For me, it came retrospectively, but it takes time. I think that's true with everybody, unless you're super lucky. And for some reason, you've stumbled across this thing where you're like, you only have your own 10 commandments in your head wow. of your values. I think that it's such a mic drop and, a, and an amazing point the the owning your story. I love that. Yeah. I absolutely love that. In a nutshell, that's exactly what you got to do. Oh, so, no, thank you. I thank just you. love that. And so in moving forward, I had so many, we could do two hours on yeah. this. We could, I, and I'm sorry, I, we're at the end of the show here. Can you talk a little bit about what you do in your, in your keynote and then if anybody would like to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, we talked about a little bit the gateway to speak about mental health as a preventative tool 
the best analogy I give is if a 45-year-old male came to me and said, Doc, I really don't want a heart attack like my dad. What should I do? I wouldn't just tell him to sit and pray. I would say, okay, watch your blood sugar, monitor your blood pressure, try to get him exercise. We need to have a similar approach to mental health as well instead of looking at the downstream effect. It's not an or, it's an and. We can do both of these things. And for me, focusing on that, it's a foundation of my optimal health pyramid. You'll find it on my website is think better. How do you train your brain? Because your brain's job is not to keep you happy. We've all heard that adage before. It's to help you survive. And maybe mm. happiness is not the bullseye. Maybe it's just the byproduct. And that's a whole other discussion too. Boy, it sure is. I would just drop that in wow. there. So for me, when I give my keynote, I use techniques that I had told you I have three boys. I have enough material every day to test my emotional literacy. Constantly outnumbered and everything too. So I've had to really put it in perspective. Like, what do I need? And a lot of that is being able to name something accurately. And I've had so much fun trying to dive into this. I am less of an academic than I am just a thinker. Nothing is being peer reviewed. This is just me thinking of things that I feel work in my population that I see. And I love presenting that to other people and see what drives with them. I love that. And your your website is drshahana.com. And if you go on there and get more information on her, thank you very much, Sean. I really appreciate it. And if, again, if you need to get a hold of me, you know how to get a hold of me, Tony at JavaBud.com. And I hope things are well. And at the same time next week, I will see you later.